Hi, and welcome to Long Live the Queen, where we talk about the women who made history. And by we, I mean the royal we, because it's just me. This week, our subject is Anne of Burgundy. Anne of Burgundy was born in 1404, the seventh of eight children born to John the Fearless, Duke of Burgundy, and his wife, Margaret of Bavaria. She also had a half-brother born the same year to their father and his mistress. She was born in a turbulent time, just three years before the Armagnac-Burgundian French Civil War started. And she was Anne of Burgundy, so that would be particularly relevant. At the time of her birth, she had six older siblings, Margaret, 11, Marie, 11, Philip, 8, Catherine, 5, Joanna, 5, and Isabel, 4. If you're wondering if they were twins, I don't think so. Probably just poor record-keeping or births very close together. Civil War was about to break out, and keeping track of your daughter's ages probably wasn't a huge priority. France was a tinderbox, just waiting to go up in flames. So we have to assume their ages within a margin of error of a year or two. Not keeping track and then saying, yeah, she's about five, when she may be four or six. Her older sister, Margaret, had recently married the Dauphin of France, her second cousin. But that's what European royals did back then. She was preparing to be the future queen of France. She was being trained for that position in Paris and no longer at home with her sisters. Her grandfather, now newly deceased, had been attempting to strengthen the Burgundian line of the French royal family. He wasn't going to live forever and his feud with his nephew was a losing battle after his death. So while he was still in charge of marrying off the royal children, he was going to marry one of them to his granddaughter. A Burgundian future queen would be the perfect solution. Mary was probably younger than her sister, and was still, for now, unmarried. Fun fact for my Tudor fans, 11-year-old Mary is the future great-great-grandmother of Anne of Cleves, the fourth queen consort of King Henry VIII of England. Anne will have her own episode eventually, so we will get back to her. Philip, the heir and only boy, was eight. Catherine, Joanna, and Isabel were all around four or five. After Anne, she had one more sister, Agnes, born three years later. Agnes was born in 1407, when Anne was three, the same year that the French Civil War started. The war was known as the Armagnac-Burgundian Civil War. I'm not going to go into the whole complicated issue, but here's the shorter story. The King of France was having trouble with his mental health. He was more off than on. We've talked about this king in other episodes. He was the one known both as Charles the Mad and Charles the Beloved. His mental health issues did not equip him to be king, but he was well-liked all the same. When his mental health was off, there were two men fighting for power. In one corner, we have Louis, the Duke of Orléans, younger brother to the king and uncle to the royal children. In the other corner, we have the king's uncle, Philip the Bold, Duke of Burgundy. He had the experience of being Lord Protector, but he was getting older. Louis thought he should retire and leave the Lord Protecting to the younger generation. They were fighting over the regency, and more importantly, the right to marry off the royal children for alliances. Louis, the king's brother, was known for being a bit promiscuous, 
fairly openly. He liked the ladies. But word on the street was that he was taking liberties with his sister-in-law, the Queen of France, when his brother was indisposed with his mental health issues. Was he? I don't know. Probably not. Although it would be understandable if the Queen had. With her husband being so often mentally absent, she would have been lonely. She had made official mistress an official position at court for her husband's use when he didn't recognize or was scared of his wife, the Queen. She had a queen understudy, for her husband's use only. And a queen's only real power for that time was how many heirs she could produce. And even with her marriage so complicated, she did produce a vast amount of heirs in quick succession. But Louis did not appreciate the rumors. The queen and Louis did spend a lot of time together. But France had a progressive court, and men and women were allowed to be friendly. It was considered totally normal socializing for that time. Louis was the perfect person to lean on while she tried to navigate being a queen so often without a king as a partner. And it seemed that it was at least partially Louis's uncle and main rival who was helping to spread the rumor. But then his uncle died, so problem solved, right? No. Burgundy's son and Anne's father, John the Fearless, picked up right where his father left off. And he persisted with the rumors that about his cousin Louis's entanglement with his sister-in-law, the Queen. Louis and his cousin John the Fearless had mad beef. Louis, as brother of the King, had higher standing to take over control. John the Fearless was just the cousin of the King. But John was fearless, so in 1407, Louis was killed, assassinated. Louis was stabbed while mounting his horse by 15 masked assassins in Paris. It was quite the theatrical production. But France was nothing if not theatrical. It was all very etu brute. It was not a question of who ordered the assassination. John the Fearless admitted it was him. So boom, civil war. The Armagnacs backed Louis of Orleans' branch of the royal family. The Burgundians, of course, supported the Duke of Burgundy and his branch of the royal family. They didn't know it yet, but this civil war would last for 28 years. It was the French Wars of the Roses, two generations before the Wars of the Roses took place in England. Both wars were cousins fighting for power during the reign of a mentally ill king. The French king, struggling with his mental health, is actually the maternal grandfather of the English king, that will also struggle with his mental health. So it probably wasn't a coincidence. It was genetics. England would have benefited from taking notes on the Armagnac-Burgundian Civil War because history really does repeat itself. The Civil War kept the majority of France pretty busy. And the English were doing well against them in the Hundred Years' War, which was also still going on. About halfway through the 28-year Civil War, the Duke of Burgundy, now Anne's brother, as her father had since died, decided that he would marry his 19-year-old sister Anne to the 34-year-old John, Duke of Bedford. John was the brother of King Henry V. And, for the last year, since Henry V's death, he had been acting as regent for his infant nephew, mostly in charge of the war effort in France. The Duke of Burgundy had too many enemies. Maybe his sister could cool the English anger. Burgundy couldn't fight a war with the English while they were still involved with their own family feud. 
John needed a wife and an heir. He was the heir to his baby nephew, and he had no wife and no children. If something were to happen to the baby king, John would be the new king, and Anne would be the queen. But for now, she was a royal duchess, the second highest ranking woman in England, only behind the king's own mother. This marriage was to cement an alliance with Burgundy, hopefully helping them against their cousins in their civil war. The Burgundians were sending a French noble girl to an English noble to signal, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Anne and John seemed happily married, despite the 15-year age gap. A happy marriage was a rare opportunity to be afforded only to very few noble women in medieval Europe. Anne would have been the second highest ranked woman in English court. The only woman who outranked her was the baby king's mother, Dowager Queen Catherine. Queen Catherine was the niece of the assassinated Louis of Orléans. Anne was the sister of the man who ordered that assassination. They were also sister-in-laws, Catherine having married the now deceased king, and Anne marrying that same king's brother. The man now running the war effort on behalf of Catherine's baby king against Catherine's own father. So, sister-in-law awkwardness ensued. Back to Anne and her English husband John. They spent a lot of their time in Calais for John's work, and that would have felt more at home to the French Duchess. Calais, after all, was on the other side of the channel, over by France. John was the more serious uncle of the king. He was the war guy. His brother Humphrey was in charge of other things back home. But occasionally, Humphrey, the forever good-time guy, wanted to get his war on, and John spent much of his time trying to be a peacemaker between his brother, the Duke of Gloucester, and his brother-in-law, the Duke of Burgundy. Enter the third sister-in-law, Jacqueline of Hainaut. There was French family drama here, too. Jacqueline was in English court, attempting to gain English assistance against her cousin, Anne's brother, the Duke of Burgundy. Jacqueline's mother was the sister of Anne's father. Long story short, both of Anne's two sister-in-laws had beef with Anne's brother, because all three sister-in-laws were French nobility and involved in the family feud across the channel. Though the brothers seemed to be supportive of each other, their wives weren't always included in that. Humphrey was clashing with his sister-in-law, the Dowager Queen. Humphrey in Parliament passed a law that the Dowager Queen Catherine couldn't remarry without her son's permission, and her son was six, and far from being old enough to give permission. She had, for a while, been interested in the possibility of marrying her late husband's cousin, Edmund. But he was already a very powerful man, and his cousins were worried that a marriage to the young, beautiful Dowager Queen would make him too powerful to control, and that possibly he would become a larger influence than they were for the child king. They had scared off her suitors by saying any man who married the queen without permission would lose all of their titles and their lands, so they better love her because they would be very, very poor. No one stepped up to that challenge. A couple of years later, Queen Catherine did find a man interested in the challenge, because he was already poor. Queen Catherine, now pregnant, ran off with her Welsh boyfriend, a commoner who had worked in her household, Owen Tudor. If you are wondering if there's any relation to the Tudor royal family, yes, 
Yes, there is, and this would be the start of it. While the king's mother was off in the country with her Welshmen, France continued fighting with England and with itself. From October of 1429, Anne and the Duke made their home in Normandy. Bedford remodeled his castle, making the domestic apartments more comfortable and improving the chapel, library, and wardrobe. John was 40, and 40 was a lot older in the 15th century than it is now. He strikes me as a man that wanted to slow down a little. Maybe not the guy that runs off to war, but he couldn't slow down. He was in charge of the country for his four-year-old nephew, King Henry VI. His only real help was his almost hedonistic good-time guy brother, Humphrey. John had to be the war guy, and Anne was his 25-year-old wife trying to be supportive. Enter Joan of Arc. Joan later testified that when she was 13, around 1425, a figure she identified as St. Michael, surrounded by angels, appeared to her in the garden. After this vision, she said she wept because she wanted them to take her with them. Throughout her life, she had visions of St. Michael, who was seen as the defender of France. She stated that she had these visions frequently and that she often had them when the church bells rang. Charles, the Dauphin of France, was fighting for his throne. His father had disinherited him and named his sister's husband as heir. His sister was none other than the beautiful Dowager Queen of England, now living in the country with her Welsh boyfriend and new baby. But the named heir, Catherine's first husband, had died, leaving only a baby son to take over. So the option for France was the disinherited prince or a foreign baby king. Prince Charles agreed to meet Joan for the first time in 1429, when she was 17. Not necessarily because he believed she could help him, but more likely that he was desperate for any allies he could get. And allies that claimed to speak with God were all the better. There were rumors that Prince Charles may not have been the son of King Charles the Mad, his father. Remember the rumors that Louis was sleeping with his sister-in-law? Now word on the street was that Louis was the real father of his nephew, probably, again, spread by the Burgundians, and now with the help of the English. Joan assured Prince Charles that he was the son of his father, and that he was meant to defeat the English and be the king of France. God had told her this. This was great news for Charles, who also couldn't be certain of who his father was. Paternity tests didn't exist, and whether Louis was his uncle or his father, there would be reason for family resemblance. He was the brother of his father. Charles and his council needed more proof than a teenage girl who spoke to dead saints. They had her examined by a council of theologians who declared that she was a good person and a good Catholic. But that's all they knew. Good person, good Catholic. They did not know if she spoke to the saints. So they suggested that the king send her off with the army to check if God supported her. If God was on her side, she would win, despite the fact that she was a teenage peasant girl, because that's what they did back then, though not usually with teenage girls, so that part was new. Joan was then sent to be examined by fr some French noblewomen to check if she was a virgin. Why? 
they found that very important in the 15th century. This was meant to establish whether or not she was the prophesied virgin savior of France. Also, to show her devotion and to prove she had not consorted with the devil. Because everyone knows that's how you could tell if a female had consorted with the devil. Sex. Why is it always sex? None of the men ever got accused of banging the devil. She was determined to be a loyal virgin with no obvious relationships with the devil. So, I guess good news for her? Charles was convinced and commissioned armor be made for Joan. That was all it took. Confirmation that she was a virgin and a bishop saying, yeah, she seems nice. She designed her own banner and started calling herself Joan the Maiden, really trying to emphasize her virginity. If her virginity had to be investigated and confirmed, she was definitely going to use that to her advantage. Good for her. That's all I have to say about that. She arrived to help the French army against the English, and her personality alone began to inspire the French troops and raise their spirits. This war had previously been about inheritance and succession laws, but Joan the Maiden turned it into a religious fight. France thought God wanted them to win, and Joan was proof of that. Joan had initial success and even went with Prince Charles to be officially crowned as the new King of France. Joan had done what she claimed God had wanted her to do. But the success was followed by a few losses to the English and their now friends, in heavy air quotes, the Burgundians. The Burgundians managed to capture Joan of Arc. So now what to do with her? The English wanted her. She had caused them a lot of problems. They had been winning until Joan inspired the French army. The Burgundians ransomed Joan to the English because they needed money more than they needed Joan. And King Charles really didn't intercede to save her, so I guess his gratitude hadn't lasted so long. Now that he was king, he didn't really need this peasant girl. Rude. Joan was put on trial by the English the following year. She was accused of having blasphemed by wearing men's clothing, i.e. not a dress, of acting upon visions that were demonic, and refusing to submit to the church because she claimed that she answered to God alone. Although she was a good Catholic, some Protestant tendencies were showing through. Joan testified that her visions had instructed her to defeat the English and crown Charles, and her success was argued to be evidence that she was acting on behalf of God. Like, dude, did you see what I did? I'm a teenage peasant girl. Obviously, I had help from God. If left unchallenged, her testimony would invalidate the English claim to the throne of France. If God wasn't on their side, they couldn't be correct. The verdict was a foregone conclusion. Joan's guilt could be used to compromise Charles' claim to legitimacy by showing that he had been consecrated by the act of a heretic. In short, it was little more than a show trial. So back to Anne of Burgundy. She was present during the trial against Joan of Arc. She herself, or the women of her household on her behalf, examined the virginity of Joan of Arc again and confirmed her to be a virgin again. That poor girl. How about it's none of anyone's business but Joan's if she's a virgin or not? How about that? Anne was reportedly impressed by Joan of Arc, and gave orders that no man, guards, or men of high rank 
were to touch Joan during her imprisonment. During the trial, Joan showed great control. She induced her interrogators to ask her questions sequentially rather than simultaneously. I don't know why that wasn't the standard already. Refer back to their records when appropriate and end the sessions when she requested. Witnesses at the trial were impressed by her prudence when answering questions. For example, in one exchange, she was asked if she knew that she was in God's grace. The question was meant as a scholarly trap. As church doctrine held that nobody could be certain of being in God's grace. If she answered positively, she would have been charged with heresy. If negatively, she would have confessed her own guilt. Joan avoided the trap by stating that if she was not in God's grace, she hoped God would put her there. And if she was in God's grace, then she hoped she would remain so. She outtricked their trick question. One of the court notaries at her trial later testified that the interrogators were stunned by her answer. To convince her to submit, Joan was shown the instruments of torture. When she refused to be intimidated, they decided against torturing her because that wasn't a great look. Public heresy was a capital crime in which an unrepentant or relapsed heretic could be given over to the judgment of secular courts and punished by death. Joan decided to act repentant. She was required to renounce wearing men's clothing. She exchanged her clothes for a woman's dress and allowed her head to be shaved. She was returned to her cell and kept in chains. Witnesses at the rehabilitation trial stated that Joan was subjected to mistreatment and rape attempts and that guards placed men's clothes in her cell, forcing her to wear them. At about the age of 19, Joan was executed in 1431. In the morning, she was allowed to receive sacraments despite the court processes requiring that they be denied to heretics. She was then publicly read her sentence of condemnation. She asked to view a cross as she died and was given one by an English soldier made from a stick, which she kissed and placed next to her chest. The processional crucifix was fetched from a church nearby. She embraced it before her hands were bound, and it was held before her eyes during her execution. She was then burned at the stake. Anne attended the execution of Joan of Arc. I don't know what it would feel like to watch a teenage girl being burned alive. Beyond horrible, I don't, I don't know that there are words. But even in a time that that was seen as an acceptable punishment, I can't imagine it was easy in any way. Anne didn't have to struggle with that memory very long, though. She became extremely ill, I think from the plague, though it could have been another illness. Bedford ordered the relics of St. Germain to be carried in procession in an effort to intercede for her recovery. The effort was made in vain as Anne died on November 14, 1432, in France. The Duke paid for an elaborate memorial service that was attended by 14,000 Parisians. Her effigy is now in the Louvre Museum. In addition to all this, the Anglo-Burgundian alliance was broken, and Bedford married just five months later. His new bride was Jaquetta of Luxembourg, the niece of his French chancellor. But we'll get back to his next wife when we cover Jaquetta of Luxembourg. The alliance that Anne helped create was 
then broken. Her presence seemed to be an integral part of that alliance, because without her, it almost immediately fell apart. And I don't think she gets enough credit for that. And that is where we will leave it for this week. What did you think of Anne? This episode was pretty short. We don't know a lot about her, and she didn't live long, but she played a major part in not only the French Civil War, but also in the Hundred Years' War. Her life ended just after her participation with Joan of Arc. What did you think of Joan the Maiden? Thank you for bearing with me through the Joan of Arc talk. I stopped a couple times. I was a little choked up. Joan gets me. What inspired her to take on the English? Did she have visions from God? Or was she mentally ill but charismatic? You can share your thoughts with me at longlivethequeenpodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook or Instagram at longlivethequeenpodcast. Long live to all the queens out there. And until next time, bye.